need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. So if you have them, let's dig in. Now to help us get a better picture of what's going on here, I want to weave portions of the of Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel into John's Gospel. It'll give us a more complete picture of the trial of Jesus. It's going to give us some more detail on what happened on that Thursday evening, which is when the trial began in Annas' home, and then culminated, of course, with Jesus standing before Pilate on Friday morning. Now, this trial has six phases to it. The first, of course, we looked at last week with Jesus being brought before Annas. Annas was the high priest that year. And you know, we talked about this, that he was the recognized high priest. He was high priest for life. But that Rome appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to be high priest that year because, well, Caiaphas was a lot more corrupt and Rome liked him better. Then Jesus is brought to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. That's phase two of this trial. Third, he's brought before Pilate. Pilate, in an attempt to not have to put Jesus to death, to not acquiesce to the wishes of the Sanhedrin, sends him to Herod, hopefully kind of getting that problem, getting rid of the problem. But Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And then Pilate has a brainstorm. That's the fifth phase of his trial. And he tries to get the people to make a choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And then finally, phase six of the trial is Pilate's forced to make a decision. And that decision, of course, is to sentence Jesus to die on a Roman cross. If I had to sum the trial of Jesus up in one word, that one word would be unjust. The trial of Jesus was unjust. And as we go through this trial, I'm going to do my best to highlight how the religious leaders of that day hated Jesus so much that they broke so many of their own rules just to get him to death. Jesus did not get a fair trial. He was not afforded the same rights as any other Jew would have been afforded under the law. There was no innocent until proven guilty going on here. He was already declared guilty, and the outcome of this trial was already determined by the Sanhedrin. Jesus was to be put to death. Jesus was unjustly arrested. He was unjustly tried. He was unjustly sentenced, and he was unjustly put to death. The whole trial, as I said, can be summed up in one word, and that is unjust. Now, the opposite of unjust is what, for you scholars out there? Just. You did it. You handled it well. Just means fairness. It means righteousness. So to be unjust is to be just not fair, right? I mean, that's an easy way to say it. It means that they were acting contrary to the standard of right. It means Jesus was wrong. Ever been wrong? Then you know what it means to be treated unjustly. Now, an example of, of an act of injustice in our life would be your boss firing you for being late the first time you're late at work. We would, we would consider that unjust, right? We would consider that being treated unfairly. But this trial is more than just not fair. It's a conspiracy. Annas and Caiaphas had conspired together to have Jesus killed so that the nation, Caiaphas' own words, would be spared. Sometime after the resurrection of Lazarus, we learn in John's Gospel that from that day on, they had plotted to put Jesus to death. Jesus would be 
becoming too popular for them. He was becoming too well-known. And they were afraid of Jesus. So from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So the trial, the arrest of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, was all part of their plan to make sure that Jesus would face the death penalty. Now, Pilate had become an unwitting pawn in this little plan of theirs. This problem of Jesus was just dumped in his lap. And as we're going to see, he doesn't like that very much. He doesn't like the fact that this problem is just dumped in his lap. And he tries, he tries, although unsuccessfully, he tries to pass this off and to set Jesus free. However, he is not in a position to go against the wishes of the Sanhedrin. Because there's a lot of friction going on here between Pilate and the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin's going over his head to Rome, and Rome's coming back to him. And so there's a lot going on here. Pilate cannot afford another complaint against him in Rome. So we're going to step back now over 2,000 years into the city of Jerusalem, and we're going to become spectators at the trial of Jesus. The trial that we learned last week was first conducted at night in secret, which was the first of their own rules that they broke. No trial was to be performed at night, conducted at night. The year is 33 AD. Jesus is arrested on Third, on Tuesday, Thursday evening, April 2nd, and he's brought before Annas in his home. That is phase one of the trial. Now, Annas is unable to get Jesus to incriminate himself. That's really what he's looking for. So he sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who, as I stated earlier, is the Roman-appointed high priest that year. Now, it's important to note, and I don't think we looked into it last week, but it's important to note that Annas has a personal issue with Jesus. Remember Jesus turned over the money tables and chased out the money lenders in the temple? Annas had a piece of that. Annas had a piece of that. He was, making a, he was making a boatload of money in the temple. What happened was, remember Jesus said, my father's house will not be a den of thieves? And that's exactly what was going on there. You see, the, the priests were in cahoots with Annas. They were letting these vendors in there to sell their animals. What would happen is they would come and present the animal, their animals. People would bring their animals from home, their lambs to be sacrificed. And the priest would look at them and say, this lamb has a blemish. Even if they had a mark with a red magic mark, these lambs have a blemish. And so they would force the people and say, this lamb is not acceptable. You have to go buy a lamb, which we guarantee is blemish-free, from one of our vendors. So it was a rigged system. The same with the money changers. They charged an extraordinary amount of interest on those money, on that money that they exchanged because you had to have certain shekels. You couldn't use what you brought. A lot of it was Roman coinage. You had to trade it in for Jewish coinage. And so they, they charged a lot of money for that transfer. And all of that was making tons of money. Some scholars think that Annas was making millions of dollars off of this. In that day, I mean, can you imagine the amount of money that was coming in? Annas was getting a piece of all of this. And so Jesus threatened all of this. Annas had a personal issue, a personal state in Jesus being put to death. Annas needed Jesus out of the picture because Jesus said, my father's house would be called a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. So as we look at this, we have to keep in mind that this is a personal issue between Jesus and Annas. And although the Sanhedrin and Annas believe that this is their plan unfolding, 
In reality, what we're going to be witnessing here today is the unfolding of the plan of salvation that was set in place before the foundation of the world. So let's look at Jesus, which is the second phase of this, as he stands before Caiaphas, because Annas now, frustrated with Jesus, sends him to his son-in-law Caiaphas to appear before the Sanhedrin. Now Luke chapter 22 and Matthew 26 gives us some detail that John doesn't. So I'm going to read some portions of Luke and some portions of Matthew as we go through this. Now Luke tells us that after he was brought from Annas' house and brought to the palace of Caiaphas, Jesus is mocked and beaten. Luke 22, verses 63 through 65 say, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Isaiah wrote over 700 years before this happened that the Messiah would be beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah wrote in 52.14, so his appearance was marred. Some of your translations may say his visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Isaiah also wrote that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus himself predicted that this very thing would happen to him. He said to the disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So these beatings began when Jesus stood before Annas, the high priest from the temple guard, struck him in the face. And, they would, and then he would also be beaten by the Roman soldiers. He would be beaten beyond recognition, the word of God tells us. And the beating and the humiliation would continue until he died on the cross. You know that picture? Any of you here seen the Passion of Christ? The picture of Jesus after he was beaten. That's a very accurate description of what he looked like. Was it a pretty picture? And he went through all of that for you and I. What happened to him in these next few hours, in his next day, over this next day, is going to be, it's going to reveal rather the ugliness of sin and the wickedness of man's heart, but it's also going to be an amazing demonstration of God's love for mankind and his mercy and his grace. Now it's still Thursday evening, Thursday night, and Jesus would have been placed in a under Caiaphas' palace. And you all see the pit up there? It's, I've been in that. We got like eight or nine people in there. And people we teach, there's a little pulpit there, you see it, we teach there. But it wasn't anything like that in that day. There's actually steps that go down into it. There's a little, they have these little windows you can look down into it from up top if you don't want to go down inside. But none of that was there then. He would have just been lowered down into that by rope and left there all night long until the next morning. So when morning comes, it's now Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, and he's brought before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And as I said, this is phase two of the trial of Jesus. Luke 22, 66 says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. And Matthew kind of fills in a little bit of the detail. He tells us what's going on. 
just um, what they were up to before they bring him to the Sanhedrin. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus. That's important to remember. They sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest rose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. So now Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. They've sought false counsel against him. They've made their false witness against him. And Jesus stands there speaking nothing against them. The Sanhedrin that Jesus is standing before now is comprised of 70 rabbis. 69 rabbis and the 70th one we believe is the high priest. So there's 70 of them. It's their Jewish, it's the Jewish Supreme Court. They hear cases of the law brought before them. If somebody violates the law, it comes to the Sanhedrin. If they have to make a new rule or a new law, it's brought before the Sanhedrin. So on this morning, the Sanhedrin is convened, as they are most days, to hear a capital case. The hearing of this case, in and of itself, is against Jewish rule, their own rules. A capital case cannot be heard on, a, on the eve of a holy day or of the Sabbath, because there was another rule that existed that said the Sanhedrin had to wait a day before they could make a ruling or a judgment in a capital case. And this, I think that's a good rule. Wait a day. Make sure you have the facts straight. Make sure there's no witnesses you missed. Wait a day, at least a day, before you pass down judgment to put somebody to death. That never happened here because the next day was the Sabbath. They were heading into Passover. This trial should never have taken place when it did. And if that's not enough, there's so many other things wrong with this trial, I don't even know where to start. So let's begin with the fact that you needed two or three witnesses to determine someone's guilt. One witness on the Jewish law was not sufficient to bring any type of charge before the Sanhedrin. That brings us to the other law, the witnesses. Remember, they sought false witness. They sought the witnesses. The witnesses themselves were required to come before the council and present their case. That's how they would determine whether there was a case at all. So if you had no witnesses, you had no charge. And if you had no charge, there could be no case. That was their rule. They didn't have any witnesses that came forward. They sought them out. They needed witnesses, and so they went and found their own. And it didn't matter to the Sanhedrin whether there was one witness or two witnesses or ten witnesses. They just wanted someone to bring some kind of charge against Jesus that they couldn't find. Finally, I believe in their prompting, they get two guys to say, Jesus said he would destroy the temple in three days and build it again. Which in today's environment would be, would be like taking a terroristic threat. Wouldn't it? But is that what Jesus truly said? Well, let's investigate. Let's be Bereans. Let's look back at what Jesus actually said. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Yes, Jesus does mention the destruction of the temple, but notice he did not say, I 
will destroy this temple. He just said destroy this temple, predicting that someone else would destroy it. It would be taken in the context of which he spoke it. He was talking about what? Destroy me, destroy my temple, destroy this body, and I will raise it up in three days. So their only evidence against Jesus is this false witness. False witness that these two witnesses took the truth, took what they heard and twisted it, twisted the truth to make it fit their own agenda. And you know, that's one of the biggest problems in the church today. Christians who take the word of God and fit it for their own agenda, twist it, make it fit. There's an old saying that says, if you torture the word of God long enough, you can make it say anything you want. The Bible tells us that God has magnified his word above his own name, Psalm 138.2. God has placed his word above his own name. So you think God's word is important to him? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will not pass away. Isaiah said, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So God's word... It's here to stay. It's here to stay forever. So let's make sure we're not torturing it to make it fit our agenda, to make it fit what we want it to say. Instead, let's make sure we're studying it and doing what it tells us to do. Amen? Amen. So let's pick up the trial back in Luke's Gospel in Luke 22. Verses 67 through 71 tell us, If you are the Christ, I'm still before the Sanhedrin, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the truth here. He doesn't twist the truth. He doesn't, he's not twisted to fit his own agenda. He gives it to them boldly and plainly in terms that they can clearly understand. I am. And make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying to them, is, I am God. I am the Son of God. I am God the Son. I am. And in the end, they didn't need witnesses. They didn't need these folks two false witnesses. All they needed was to ask Jesus a pointed question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus was going to answer that question truthfully every single time and say, I am. And that's what they've been waiting for. That's what Annas tried to get out of him. They wanted him to incriminate himself. They, they are going to bring now a charge of blasphemy against him because of Jewish law. It was blasphemous to say you were, the, you were God, that you were the Son of God. Blasphemy means an act or offense to speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. And, and that's what they're saying Jesus did. Jesus saying he's God. And in their minds, this is the offense that they've been looking to charge him with. The problem with this charge, of course, is that Jesus is telling the truth. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And so that moves us now to phase three of the trial. Jesus is now sent before Pilate. And we go back to John chapter 18, verse 28. And he led Jesus to Caiaphas, to the praetorium, 
And it was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So before we go any further, I'd like to point out the complete hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders here, these religious men. They wouldn't enter the praetorium because the Romans didn't follow their same rules and laws. And that law said that all the leaven must be removed from your home before the Passover. So they're fearful that they're going to go into the praetorium and all the leaven's just going to jump out on them and they're going to be defiled and they can't eat Passover meal. Did they ever think for one moment that putting an innocent man to death was the ultimate defilement? That's the problem with religion, the religious men. They think as long as they fulfill their religious obligations, that they can live like hell for the rest of the week. Look at the abuse and torture that Jesus suffered at the hands of religious men. Under a religious system, God, mercy, grace, love, all of that takes a backseat to tradition and rules. We have an established relationship with what they had was religion. And there's a world of difference between religion and a relationship. Think about that for a moment. Think about the relationships you have in your home. Think about your wife, your husband. You go to them when there's trouble. You go to them to get advice, to seek counsel. Two heads together, praying is one in Jesus' name to strengthen that. Think of all of that. Think of that relationship that you have over the years. Think of the trust that has been established over the years between you. This relationship with Jesus is ten times more than that. Ten times better than that. A thousand times better. We have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can come to him. We can seek his advice, his counsel. We put our trust in him. Because he loves us and only wants the best for us. Having a relationship with him means he's He goes everywhere with us. He's with us when we rise up in the morning. He's with us as we go through our day. He's with us when we lay our head on our pillow at night. He is with us. And religion doesn't offer that kind of relationship, does it? Religion's all about tradition and rules. Relationship is about having a personal relationship, a knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's nothing better their charge against them. Bear in mind that blasphemy is their charge, their crime. Blasphemy is not a crime in Roman law. But it's a crime punishable by death in Jewish law. And they want Jesus put to death. But they have a problem. See, under Roman rule, Rome took away their right to the death penalty. They could not sentence anyone to death, and they certainly couldn't carry out the death penalty. So they had to take Jesus before the Roman governor. If they carried out their own death sentence, Jesus then would have been taken outside the city walls and stoned to death. It's a much different death penalty. But under Roman rule, it meant crucifixion. Remember the Sanhedrin, by their own rules, had to wait one full day before they could render a guilty verdict. 
this verdict was rendered by the Sanhedrin that same morning and decided that Jesus would be put to death. And then he's ushered into Pilate's, before Pilate, to get him to pronounce the sentence. All of this happened within a couple of hours. Within a few hours from this time, Jesus would be on a cross, dying. So they drag, they drag Jesus early in the morning before Pilate, because they're excited now. They've got their charge. They want Jesus put to death. Pilate's the only one that can do this. They drag him before Pilate. It's early in the morning. I don't even think Pilate's awake yet. I believe his men had to go wake him up, because they won't come into the praetorium, so they have to get Pilate up, get him dressed, and he has to come out to them. Now, Pilate was the appointed Roman governor, the magistrate chief officer of Judea. Up until 1961, <laughs> critics argued that there was no one in history named Pontius Pilate. And since there was no one in history named Pontius Pilate, there couldn't have been a crucifixion or a trial. Therefore, this whole story that you Christians made up about Jesus can't be true. But then something happened. In 1961, the Pilate Stone was discovered, dated to A.D. 30, and includes a description of Pontius Pilate and mentions him as prefect of Judea. Now, prefect means Roman governor. Now, we don't know a lot about Pilate. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for his connection to the trial of Jesus, he would have governed in obscurity. But we do know that he was appointed the prefect of Judea in A.D. 26. And he remained in that office for about 10 years. Now, Pilate is not a very memorable figure in history. His reign as Roman prefect was filled with problems, filled with trouble. He really wasn't liked by Rome. He certainly wasn't liked by the Sanhedrin. But he will always be remembered for this one act presiding over the trial of Jesus Christ. So the Sanhedrin come to the Praetorium. Pilate would normally have been staying in Caesarea, and I was blessed when I was in Israel this past winter to, to see this place. It's an amazing place. I don't know why you would ever want to leave it. They had horse races there. I mean, it was just a, it was right on the sea, right on the Mediterranean. It's just a beautiful place to ruin. They discovered the ruins of it. As a matter of fact, from what I read, he said there was a pilot flying over the area one day, not this pilot, there's a pilot flying over the air with them, flying over that area, and he noticed the ruins, and that's how he discovered the ruins of Caesarea. But he would he would come and stay in the Praetorium, which was another Roman palace, inside the city of Jerusalem during the high holy days, because in case there was any trouble, they could he could deal with it. He was there with a whole legion of soldiers, he could deal with it swiftly from inside the city. So Pilate finds out he's asked business. He goes out to meet him. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation, verse 29 of John 18, do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin proceeded to level all kinds of other accusations against Jesus. Luke 23, 2 says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation." And forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Am I missing something here? I thought they had a charge of blasphemy against him. Now they're trying to doctor it up a little bit, make it sound a little bit more exciting for Pilate. 
They fear that just that charge of blasphemy, which again is not against Roman law, was not going to be enough to do the job. So they decided to add a few other charges against it to make it a little bit more appealing. So that Rome Pilate, in particular, would find Jesus guilty and sentenced him to death. Then Pilate said to them, you take it. You judge it according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That the saying of Jesus, and this probably is the most truthful thing they said all day. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying what death he would die. Pilate doesn't want any part. Rome may be a lot of things, but they still have the desire to see justice done. And I believe Pilate senses something. You know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, it must be a duck. Pilate was born at night. I don't think it was that night. He knows something's wrong. He knows the Sanhedrin's up to something. He knows that they're wily figures and he knows that they're not these pious religious men that they make themselves out to be. Pilate knows something's up here. And so he says, you judge him. You judge him according to your law. And then the truth comes out. They want him put to death. And they don't have the power to do that. They need Pilate. Pilate becomes a pawn now in this plan. They need Pilate to put him to death. Then Pilate enters the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, in Greek, the way Pilate asked this question is with a surprise in his voice. He's looking at Jesus. He's saying, are you? You the king of the Jews? Standing before Pilate is a man dressed in common clothes. Not a royal robe, not royal finery. He's dressed in common clothes which are splattered with his own blood. His face is swollen, almost unrecognizable. And Pilate's wondering, how can this man, how can he be a threat to anyone? How can he be a threat to the Sanhedrin? How can he be a king over any people? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Verse 34 of 18. Or did others tell you this concerning you? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So Jesus tells Pilate that he is indeed a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. There will come a time when Jesus will come and establish his kingdom here on this earth. But as he stood before Pilate that day, his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom, not a physical. And to further ease the mind of Pilate, Jesus assures him that his kingdom, when it does come, is not going to be ushered in by force. It's going to be established by the truth. Pilate asked Jesus, what is the truth? What is the truth? I believe Pilate's tired. Pilate has sent, spent his whole career scratching and clawing, trying to get to the top. 
He's like any other leader in Rome during that time period. He wants to one day be Caesar. He's got a, he has these political aspirations. And he's seen other people around his circle with political aspirations who also want to be Caesar. And he's seen them, how easily they would lie, how they would cheat, how they would steal, how they would manipulate themselves to get to the Pilate is so cynical at this point that he doesn't believe anyone is capable of telling the truth. And so what we're witnessing here overall, beside the fact that this trial is unjust, is we're witnessing a denial of the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's the absolute truth. To deny Jesus is to deny that truth. Now, the world has said that truth is relevant. They want to make up their own truth, their own reality, to avoid the truth of Christ, to avoid the truth of the Word, to avoid the truth that you have to make a choice. They want their own truth. But the Bible tells us that there is only one truth, only one absolute truth. And by the way, just for the record, truth is absolute. It's not relevant. It's not anything you want it to be. It's absolute truth. And Jesus is that truth. And Pilate, who asks, what's the truth? Who's been so hardened, his heart is so hardened by the lies and the falsehoods that he's seen all around him, has the truth, the very truth of the world, of, of eternity, standing right next to him. So the kingdom of heaven is going to be established, is established by truth. What does that look like for a follower of Turn to John chapter 7, if you will. Just flip back some pages. John chapter 7, verse 17. If you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, it's a good time to highlight it or underline it or make reference to it. So John 7, 17 says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak it of my own authority. So if you want to know if you're walking in the truth, Here's a challenge. Walk according to the will of God. Walk according to the word of God. When we're following his word, and we're not following the world around us, we will know, you'll see a difference. There's going to be a difference. When we walk in the word, when we walk in the truth and don't walk in the world, there's going to be a difference in how you interact with people, the things you say, the things you do, the places you go, the people you hang out with. There's a difference, and you're going to recognize and even maybe more importantly in the day we live in today, you're going to be able to recognize when someone is teaching a false doctrine to you because you know, you'll know that that doctrine, what they're saying, what they're teaching is not found in the Word of God. Therefore, it is against His will. If you want to know if you're walking in the truth, if you're living in the truth, if you're conducting your life according to the truth, you will know it by walking in His will. So Pilate says, I can't find any fault in him. Pilate's saying, hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. You're asking me to put an innocent man to death. You're asking me to, to try an innocent man. There's no thing wrong. He did nothing. Luke 23 says, but they were more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So Pilate finally sees an out. When he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, the light goes on. 
and says, hey, I know who the ruler of Galilee is. It's Herod. Let's send him to Herod. So Luke 23 says, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked the man, he asked if the man were of Galilee, was a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now when Herod saw this, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard so many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had not they had been in enmity with each other. Herod is the family name of the dynasty that ruled in Judea. Herod Antipas became the Tetrarch of Galilee. And he became that Tetrarch on the death of his father, Herod the Great. Now, a Tetrarch is the ruler of one-fourth, one-fourth of the kingdom. So he received a fourth of his father's kingdom. This is the same Herod who divorced his first wife to marry his Herodias. Remember Herodias? The wife of his brother Philip, who was also a Tetrarch. This is the same Herod that John the Baptist used to rebuke all the time for doing that very thing, for living in sin and adultery with his brother's wife. He's the same Herod that had John's head removed. Herod is a Roman-appointed ruler over that jurisdiction. So Pilate sends him Jesus for him to judge. Judge him yourself. He sends him to Herod for Herod to judge. Jesus refuses to answer any Herod's questions. So Herod has all the choice now but to send them back to Pilate. And so now Pilate has another idea. Since Herod didn't work out, he has another idea. So now we go to phase five of the trial of Jesus, and Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate decides to present to the people a choice. Jesus or Herod. John 18.39 says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. That's all that John tells us. Matthew tells us he's notorious. Matthew also says that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes of the people there to cry out for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. So the choice placed before the people that day was between the convicted insurrectionist and a murderer or a man that Pilate found no fault in, an innocent man, a just man. So what happens next illustrates God's amazing grace in a way that nothing else can be done. Barabbas was guilty. He deserved the death. He deserved death for his sin. Jesus, on the other hand, is innocent. He did nothing to deserve death. He had no sin. Yet the innocent man, Jesus, will die in the place of the guilty. The people made a choice that day. 
And it's a choice that we still make every day of our life to choose between the innocent, spotless Lamb of God or the world. Barabbas goes free while Jesus is put to death. Every one of us in this room is Barabbas. We all deserve to die because of our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, a man named Jesus, substituted his life for ours. He took upon himself the death that we deserve. And he paid the price, the debt that we owe, the debt of our sin, which is death. Our sins, Barabbas' sins, all were taken to the cross by Jesus and by the grace of God. They were put to death there and we were separated. So when we're faced with a choice, the choice, the choice to choose this world over Jesus, what would be our choice? Because although we've chosen Jesus, we still have to make that choice every day. So whether we walk in the garden, or we walk in the world, whether we follow Christ, or we follow the ways of the world. That, that choice gets thrown at us every single day. We have to make those choices. Sometimes they're moment by moment. But those choices come at us hot and heavy sometimes, don't they? Jesus or the world. And when you think about it, it's a choice we make every day to be obedient to the word of God or disobedient and follow the world. Sometimes that choice is hard to make. But when you look back and you consider the choice that Jesus made to go through all of this so that you and I could be forgiven, that our sins could be washed away, that we could walk this earth now as free men and women no longer under the penalty of death because of our sins. No longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but set free, washed clean, a new creation. When we think about that, I think our choice is made a lot easier. Follow Christ and not the Lord. Now Matthew tells us what happens next. The pilot saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult, a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all you people answered and said, This blood be on us and on our children. And he released Barabbas to them. Pilate washes his hands of this whole unjust proceeding. And his washing of his hands becomes symbolic for us, doesn't it? We still say this today when something, there's a situation in our life, whenever we've had enough of something, we say, ah, I wash my hands of this. We think that absolves us from, from the responsibility of going forward, doesn't it? In the case of sin, we can't simply just wash our hands of our sin. We can't grant ourselves absolution. The only way our sins to be washed clean is by the blood of God. The only way for us to be absolved or forgiven of our sin is by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Tyler thinks that he's been set free from any responsibility here by the washing of his hands as he washes the blood of this innocent man on his hands. When it's the very blood of this innocent man that can set Tyler free. It's the blood of this innocent man that can also condemn him. thinks he's freeing himself, but he's still guilty. He's still a sinner. 
We turn back to John's Gospel now, chapter 19. 19, verse 1. So when Pilate took Jesus and scourged so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Pilate has basically declared Jesus innocent. Innocent of any wrongdoing. <coughs> Jesus has been beaten by religious men. Now he's scourged by Roman soldiers. The Romans, I can tell you, were an expert at torture. They tortured prisoners to get information, and they tortured criminals to get confessions. So they would chain, they would have chained Jesus to a pillar, and they would have beat him within an inch of his life with what they called a flagrum or a whip, and it was a purpose. Wooden handle with usually three strands of leather cord came off of it, and they would wrap bone fragments and metal into those leather straps so that when they beat the back of anybody who they who was brought before them, it literally tore their back to strips. In many cases, it actually ripped organs, tore organs. That's how deep these gashes went. Many men died simply from this beating alone. The Romans thought that 40 lashes would kill you, so they generally only issued 39. They beat every prisoner before they crucified them because it weakened their bodies so much that they died sooner on the cross. Now the back of Jesus would have been, his garment would have been ripped off him, the reveal his back, and he would have been beaten in this fashion. And if you, again, you watch The Passion of the Christ, that, I know it's Hollywood, but that is a very accurate description of what happened to Jesus in that meeting. Pilate, I believe, did this thinking that Jesus being scourged to the point of death would satisfy the bloodlust of the Senate. Why do you scourge a man who you just declared innocent? I think that Pilate felt that if, he, if Jesus survived this scourging, and he brought him before the Sanhedrin, beaten and bloodied near death, that they would let him go and Pilate could spare his life. Matthew adds another detail to all this. He placed a reed in his hand, like a scepter, and then bowed the knee before him. So he has a twisted crown on his head, a reed, a scepter in his hand, purple robe on, a robe on him, and they're bowing their knee before him. They're mocking him. He is the king. He is our king. He's their king, and they're mocking him. But I can guarantee you this, that one day, every knee will bow, even the knees of these men. Every tongue will confess, even the tongues of these men who mocked him, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king over all. Phase six in the last phase of this trial is Pilate's decision. Uh, he goes back to Pilate. Pilate has him scourged, and then Pilate makes his final decision. Verse 19, chapter 19, rather, verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him. Crucify him, for I find no fault in him. So this is Pilate's final word. 
I don't want to crucify this man. I don't want to put him to death. You put him to death. He's innocent in my eyes. But Pilate knows that they don't have the authority to put him to death. I think he's thinking they're just going to walk away frustrated. But they shout even louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. The Jews wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out of their hair for good. This, this, he's not profitable for Annas. He's caused problems. Annas is his whole livelihood's in jeopardy here. But they can't kill him under Roman law. So they're pressuring Pilate. They're turning up the heat. They're putting more pressure on him for him to do their dirty work. Pilate simply does not want to put an innocent man to death. It's not often in his position that he deals with someone who's truly innocent. And the ironic thing is that Jesus is the only one there who is innocent. Everyone else, including Pilate, including the Sanhedrin, are guilty. The only way for them to be declared innocent, to be free from their sin, is for Jesus to take that sin, their sin, our sin, to the cross. So the very thing Pilate's trying to avoid here, putting an innocent man to death, has to happen. It must happen. For the sins of all mankind, including the Sanhedrin, including Pilate, past, present, and future, to be forgiven. So that when a sinner puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to wash them clean from their sin, they are forgiven of their sin. And they are declared innocent of their sin. They're declared righteous as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So that when God looks upon us, he no longer sees us the sinner. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of the Son. There is no other way. There was no other way other than an innocent man to be sentenced to death on a Roman cross. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate is unsure what to do especially after the dream that his wife had that troubled her son. She had sent the message, if you remember the story, she sent the message to her husband as he sat there in judgment to have nothing to do with this just man. Now, I doubt that she had ever interfered with a trial before. So this had to be weighing heavy on Pilate's mind. This really disturbed his wife, and it had to disturb him. He knows there's something different about this man. And now he hears that Jesus is the Son of God? He's worried. He's concerned. On one hand, he's concerned that he's putting an innocent man to death. And on the other hand, he's concerned that he's upsetting the, the religious leaders and that this is going to get back to Rome. His options are running out here. He's being forced into a corner. He's being forced to make a decision. And it's a place where we've all found ourselves, isn't it? We've all found ourselves there. We've all found ourselves at the end of that proverbial rope. We've all found ourselves at the crossroad. Jesus, or continue the lifestyle we're leading. We 
can't have hope. Pilate couldn't set him free and still keep the Jewish leaders happy. He couldn't have it both ways. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have them both. We had to make a decision. You and I made that decision. We chose Jesus. Anybody in this room this morning regret ever making that decision? Pilate had a decision to make. Let an innocent man go free or allow the religious leaders to dictate to him this man's fate. Jesus or religion. Jesus or the world. You must make a choice. You can't have it both ways. Jesus shows us here that he is in control. That this same plan that was put in place from the foundation of the world is being unfolded right in front of our eyes. That Pilate, Judas, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, none of them have the power to do what's going on here other than the power that was granted them because this is part of God's plan of salvation. So the reason any of this is unfolding, the reason any of this has come before Pilate is because it is God's plan. Not man's plan. Man is just being used to carry out God's will here. Remember Jesus said this is exactly what would happen to him. The Son of Man would be betrayed. Brought before the high priest, before the scribes, betrayed, condemned to death, and he would be delivered to the Gentiles, Pilate and the Roman soldier, where he would be mocked and scourged, crucified. And then Jesus said the most promising words ever. And on the third day, he will rise again. So this plan, this plan of salvation that began before the world ever existed is being executed here in the Roman Praetorium. And Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin are just part of this plan. And we need we need to remember, we always need to remember, especially with a, a presidential election coming up, that it's God who sets kings in their place, who sets leaders and rulers in their place. He sets them there to accomplish his will, his plan. And the ultimate plan, the ultimate will of God is the return, the return of his son to rule and reign on that is his ultimate plan. This trial is just one step toward the final outcome. One day Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king against speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in judgment seat in a place that was called the pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbath. Pilate wants to release Jesus. Jesus is innocent. Pilate realizes now that he's just become a ploy in this plan of the Jews. But the mention of Caesar's name here seals the fate of Jesus Christ. How many, when faced with that decision, Jesus or the world, will make that right decision? How many say, you don't understand? I want to party. I want to play the field. I want to travel. I don't have time for Jesus right now. Jesus crimps my lifestyle. You don't understand. I work long hours. The kids play sports on the weekends. I'm too busy for Jesus. Listen, I've spoken to a lot of people in the last days and weeks of their life, and I can tell you this. No one has ever said to me, I wish I had more time to advance my career. I wish I was, my life was busier. I've never heard anybody say that, ever. 
When you're at that point in your life, the only thing you wish you would spend more time with is your family, and you wish you would spend more time getting to know Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you that no one ever regrets spending more time with Jesus Christ. So Pilate resigns himself to the fact that where the name Caesar has been mentioned, Pilate knows now that if he goes against their wishes and doesn't acquiesce to their wants and desires, that Caesar's going to hear about this and he's going to be in more trouble in that. And he doesn't want trouble with Caesar. So he chooses his career, his political aspirations over Jesus. He resigns himself to the fact that he now must do what they're telling him to do for Jesus to death. So he sits down in the place of judgment. Gabbatha means the high place. So this is like a stage where Pilate and Jesus, they're up above the crowd, so the crowd is looking up at them. Now it was preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. So Pilate is sitting in judgment of the very one who will one day judge the living and the dead. This whole trial is unjust from the very beginning. It's forced, it's coerced. They thought in their minds, and, and this is true, this is the perfect time to try Jesus. It's just before the Passover meal. The lambs would be slaughtered soon. People would be busy hurrying around, preparing their homes, getting ready for the Passover feast. The priests would be in the temple, busy preparing for the sacrifices. No one would notice this poor carpenter being put on trial and put to death on a Roman cross. It was, however, the perfect time for God to be at work. Because the perfect spotless Lamb of God would spill his blood for the remission of sins, of our sins. At the same time the lamb was being killed in the temple, his blood was being sprinkled on the mercy seat to be pulled over the sins of the people. They cried out, crucify, crucify. Jesus said that the Son of Man must be lifted up and that he would draw all people to himself, John 12, 32. People look today to the cross of Christ to be saved. They look today to the cross of Christ to seek forgiveness for their sin. And I believe, I believe, as Jesus stood there that day in judgment, looking out at the crowd, listening to the voices, hearing crucifying, crucifying, away with him, as Pilate's passing judgment on him, he's thinking of you and I. He's thinking of, he's, I think he's looking at us, our faces, seeing us, every one of us, throughout the centuries. Knowing that countless people, including you and I, the only way that we could be saved, the only way that we could be washed clean from our sin, the only way for that to happen was for his innocent blood to be shed. And for the people who have decided to follow Jesus, people who have made him the king of their lives, lord of their lives, will never regret that decision. Yes, all of this happened in the fulfillment of the scripture, but it goes much deeper than that. Jesus died. Jesus went through all of us for you and I. Jesus went to the cross for one purpose, for one purpose only, 
because there was no other way. There was no other way for you and I to be saved. There was no other way for us to be washed clean. There was no other way for our sins to be forgiven. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. Amen. Jesus, we love the fact that you are the only way we love who you are and what you've done. And Lord, we love you and you love us. What an amazing thought this morning. And you did all of this because of your immense love for all of us. So Lord, help us remember that as we face those choices daily to follow the world, ways of the world, choice always being Jesus, because we were always your choice. We ask you in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.